A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I feel shame. Shame for my kids because I, they look at me with strong eyes. Uh, I feel that they uh, are telling me, uh, please do something for us. We're feeling cold, we are angry. Protect us, do something for us. But I cannot do anything. I'm David Knowles, and this is Battle Lines, Israel Gaza. Terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others. Like every place I go, I go run away and I just find bombs and I find dead people. And like maybe one day I'll end up like them, but it's a really scary thing for me. People telling me that you know mostly this is about Hamas, but they're also angry with absolutely everybody. I'm begging the world to bring my baby back home. In this episode of Battle Lines, I speak to Middle East correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva and senior foreign correspondent Zafir Yam, who explain the most important stories from the last week in Israel and Gaza. We also hear a harrowing report from Sophia who's been in touch with people in the Gaza Strip who share with her their day-to-day struggle to survive. And we hear the story of an Israeli hostage who stayed behind to help the wounded when Hamas attacked the Supernova Music Festival in October. His brother spoke to The Telegraph last week. It's Friday, the 1st of December. Well, thank you so much, Sophia and Natalia, for your time. Natalia, can I start with you? Over the last week, what have been the major updates in Israel and Gaza? Hi, everyone. So we're now in the third month of the war. It's been over 62 days. I would say the most important development in the past week is the idea of pushing through quite fast across Gaza into the south. They reached as far as Han Yunis and they're closing in on on the areas even more to the south than that. Han Yunis is the city quite well known in the area for hosting residences of some of Hamas's most prominent leaders, including Ayah Sinwar. And just on Wednesday night, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told reporters that, according to his intelligence, Israeli forces have surrounded his house. And this morning, we heard from the IDF, they did not quite confirm the line about surrounding his house, but they indicated that at least they are aware of his whereabouts. They, they said 
he is um, quote not above ground he's below ground um and it looks like they they know where where he is but obviously they wouldn't speak any further just like a week ago there doesn't appear to be any indication that the ceasefire that we had previously would be restored israel has rejected any calls even from families of hostages because a lot of we still have a lot of hostages in hamas captivity we're talking about at least 138 that number still keeps getting updated because obviously new intelligence emerges about hostages who might be alive or hostages who might be dead and the families of some of the hostages who are still in in Gaza have asked the government to prioritize an operation to save their relatives and talks to to secure the release still right now at this point we don't see any indication that Israel is going to be willing to sit down for talks with anyone and um, we don't even see any significant efforts from the US that previously helped at least pushed Egypt and Qatar to, to mediate to immediately mediate the talk right now right now we don't see any concerted efforts from the US to do that at the same time Joe Biden in the US faces domestic pressure to do something about Gaza because the reports that are emerging from there speak to the level of destruction that we haven't seen so far and again as, as the army advances there's just very little room left for civilians and previously we used to say that there is nowhere safe in, in Gaza i think that statement is even more true today especially as people are being pushed for the for the south just on thursday morning we heard about a deadly airstrike in rafah and this is supposed to be a town that's the idea of promised not to target it's very close to the egyptian border and I know from people from from Gaza who who thought that it was one of the few places that they could hide. The conditions there are awful. There are no places to 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 rent, you know, in terms of like regular housing, flats and homes. People have been pitching tents on the streets. But now that we we hear reports about airstrikes in Rafah, obviously it speaks to the fact that there's just very little for civilians to to go to in um, Gaza at the moment. There's also been an important development inside Israel that could have potential ramification for the way this conflict develops, not, not only on the Gaza front, but also elsewhere. Earlier this week, Israeli authorities, the Israeli police, have uh, given permission to far-right groups to march across Jerusalem's old city, across Jerusalem's Muslim quarter in the old old city and towards the Temple Mount. Now, those are quite notorious far-right groups that are quite radical by, by the standards of Israeli politics, I would say. They're calling for restoring Jewish control over the Temple Mount and the whole of Jerusalem. We're expecting this rally to happen on Thursday night, and earlier on Thursday, opposition leader Yair Lapid issued a warning, and he condemned the Israeli government for allowing this march to happen, for at least like not taking any measures to prevent it. And he warned that something like that across East Jerusalem, which is majority Palestinian, could, quote, set ablaze additional fronts and cause more death and destruction. So this is something to watch out for because, you know, all of those weeks, there's been a lot of tension in the West Bank. Palestinian death toll in the West Bank in the last two months has already been greater than anything that this country has seen in the past 20 years. But in relative terms, obviously, we haven't seen any of the scale of the destruction and horror that we saw in Gaza. And basically, you know, if there is something that could destabilize the West Bank, it would be this march. So it would be something that I would really watch out for this week. 
Obviously, when this episode is released, it'll be Friday, so this march will have happened. Natalia and Sophia, you're both in Jerusalem. What's the atmosphere there? Are people nervous about this? Have you seen any warning signs? Uh, how, how does the city feel to you? If I can jump in quickly, I, I have unusual examples to, to show about that. I did a separate story about Palestinian prisoners released back into communities in this Jerusalem. But just to give you an idea of the atmosphere, earlier this week, I met with Jerusalem's only Santa, qualified, certified Father Christmas. And he is, of course, a local guy. He's a Palestinian Christian. So we spent a bit of time with him at Santa's house in the old city in Jerusalem and in his Jerusalem. And um, we, we got to chat with families who came to see him. And obviously, because of the war, these are mostly locals. There are basically no tourists. I think it's not an exaggeration to say. And in my conversation with those local families who are Palestinian Christians, I got a feeling of just how nervous everyone is. You know, for starters, you, you come up to people and you talk and you ask them about Christmas, about holidays and how they're feeling and like what, what does it mean to, to them to bring their kids to see Santa. And everyone was so jumpy and so nervous that they asked for, for their names to be withdrawn, that they would be quoted under pseudonym or be anonymous. It's just, you know, it's astonishing, you know, because obviously the subject is so innocuous. So people are very much afraid, the Palestinian community is very much nervous about what's happening and that that tension is definitely in the air, you know, even when you go and report on a story about Santa. Can you tell us any more about these, these you described them as far-right groups, who are they, what political influence do, do they have? Well, that's the thing. It's uh, it's someone who 10 years back, they would be described as very fringe. They would be frowned upon by the political establishment. You know, they would not have any political clout. They would be dismissed as hooligans. But in recent years, they gained political prominence. One of their main backers is uh, National Security Minister Ben Gvir, who comes from Israeli settler background, who himself has been known in engaging in something qualified as hate speech. And I'm, I'm feeling free to say it because he, he's, he's faced charges for that. He's faced multiple accusations. And he's been acting as the front for those far-right groups, which for the most part, religious. And previously, as, you know, as recent as five years back, they might attempt to do a march like that in Jerusalem, but they would inevitably be stopped by the police. Police would prevent them from going anywhere near the Temple Mount. But in this day and age, the police is led by one of those allies, which makes everyone obviously more nervous. And also, you know, don't forget about the fact that we've seen a growing number of gun licenses that has been issued across Israel and Obviously, we know that settlers have got guns and like a lot of those people have got guns. So it can get really, really testy in the old city on Thursday. Uh, Natalia, will you be covering it? Will you be going out onto the streets? Yeah, I'm actually debating it because, you know, I've just spoken with some uh, local journalists who have covered those marches or they have been with the activists like to see them try to get into the old city and do that. And right now there's a feeling that there may, may be a lot of gunfire from both sides. And I'm just trying to evaluate my, my risks and, and see how, how we can do it in a safe, um, in a safe manner, whether it's worth going, going there at all. I'm not quite sure at this point, to be honest. Understood. Um, Sophia Yan, you arrived in Israel just as the ceasefire ended. I mean, you said your first full day there was when the ceasefire ended. So 
Talk about that. What was it like coming into a country at war? What have, what have you seen? Landing in Jerusalem, I could already tell very quickly that there was a sense of tension. On the day I got here, about a week ago, there was a, an attack at a bus stop on the outskirts of the city. And then the following day is when the ceasefire, this temporary truce that had occurred, expired. And so in a way, we're in a new phase of fighting now in Gaza before the Israeli military was targeting the north. Then they were moving south. Now it's everywhere. Families in Gaza are saying that they have nowhere to go, basically just hanging on to survive. Uh, I've been in touch with a few people there. And really every day in the morning, if they can send a message to say hello, that means you know that they have survived. And it's it's really a difficult situation. One mother said that her three-year-old daughter shakes and trembles every time there are airstrikes and loud explosions. This one Palestinian father just last night told me that he simply cannot bear to look into the eyes of his four kids. They see him as a superhero. And he says, he's helpless. He says, I can't do anything. And he's so embarrassed in that sense that he can barely look at them. And so this is what we're looking at now in, in Gaza, this massive humanitarian crisis that so many organizations, including the United Nations, the UN, have warned of. Uh, in terms of the Israeli side, what Natalia was saying about how how difficult and how much pressure there is on, in terms of people expressing their opinion, the Israelis feel the same too. There are rallies here and there in support of the hostages that are still remaining. There's also some smaller rallies that are calling for peace but these people that I've, I've met who've, who've come out to try to stand for peace, they say that they also don't want to be quoted with their full names. One of them, this one woman told me that right now, if you are in Israel and you are Jewish, to speak out against the war is like treason, that you risk then being criticized of not standing with your fellow countrymen and women and for not wanting to fight, quote unquote, the enemy, Hamas. And so it's really very, very hard for people to openly say at times, what they're feeling. And of course, it's a very wide range of emotions. And at the end of it, I think the thing that the whole world needs to remember is that it doesn't, in a way, uh, matter what your politics are. Right now, there are so many people so traumatized and suffering from all of this that it's it's really hard to put into words to explain these experiences that both Natalia and I have heard about and, and learned of as described to us. Zooming out slightly then, Sophia, what do you make of the political scene? I mean, we've spoken quite a few times over the past few weeks about the troubles Benjamin Netanyahu is facing with his own people, his his popularity plummeting after the October the 7th attacks. What, what have you been looking at there? What do you make of it? Well, this war has been really devastating for the prime minister, for Benjamin Netanyahu. His popularity is falling polls. Many of them show this at all-time lows. If there were elections held now, his party would win very few seats in parliament. Even lifelong supporters are souring on him. We've gotten some more details now that have trickled out indicating what seems to be a massive intelligence failure on the part of the Israeli authorities. This was always a question from, from day one. How could this have happened? How could this have happened with what many people believe to be a strong army and what many people believe to be a very robust intelligence service? Uh, and so that question was always there. And again, there have been more reporting from different outlets looking at this particular question. It does seem like the government had some sense of what was going to happen. And for whatever reason, it some something just didn't work. Somewhere along the line, the chain broke. And so this feeling, this feeling of trust, uh, a lot of the Israelis I've 
spoken to say that there was, in a way, a social contract, a trust that was broken between the public and the government, that they always felt that this was a place that would have their back. Yesterday, I interviewed a woman who was living on one of the kibbutzes that was attacked, and she's got relatives who are still being held hostage. And she said, you know, I always felt safe. She said to me that she always felt like the Israeli military was standing at her door guarding her. But on that day, all of that was out the window. And so that sense of trust being broken is very severe. And it's a big question as to whether or not the government will be able to repair that over time. There's also a sense that Netanyahu, that this this failure, so to speak, ha- happened because he was so busy trying to shore up his political base, that he was putting politics over the good of the country. And so this widespread disappointment is really strong. There are people who would like to see him resign, but there's also a sense of national unity. And this is something that has been a, a very interesting. I hear this from many people who wear all sorts of political stripes, but there's some sense that this is not the right moment to unseat the government to eat the government alive, so to say, but rather later, after the most difficult moments are over, there needs to be some reflection and inquiry into what happened, but not right now when, as one market vendor said to me, quote, our kids are still at the front. Their sense that the government needs to be held accountable is very strong, but in this moment, in this emergency wartime moment, it's not the right time to be doing that. As Natalia said, it's now been well, we're now into the third month of war. What have you both seen? What If you could take a step back for us um, and explain to the audience what you think the sort of the biggest trends, the biggest things we need to pay attention are. Natalia Vasilyev. Sure. I would say, to me, the biggest surprise is it's been more than two months. Obviously, we, we, we knew from day one, since the Hamas attack on October 7th, that Israel would conduct some sort of a military operation in Gaza. We knew that it would be devastating. Obviously, we would have no idea how utterly devastating it would be, how uniquely tragic the circumstances would be. You know, you think about this very small, densely populated area. You also think about the fact that unlike in other conflicts we have covered before, you know, Ukraine, Syria, people have nowhere to run. Like the borders are shut down. They can't go to Israel and they cannot go to Egypt. You know, the Egyptian border is sealed. I think what's what's been surprising to me is I, to this day, I see absolutely no vision or any attempt to imagine a future in Gaza after Hamas is eradicated. We've been hearing from Israeli officials from day one that Hamas needs to be, quote unquote, decapitated. You know, this is very well, you might think this is very military objectives, but we haven't seen anywhere in the public discourse from my conversation with Israeli officials, both on the record and off the record, I have seen no ideas of what to do with Gaza before that. You know, you think you think about sweeping up, mopping up the, the area, as, as, as they describe it, but there's absolutely no vision or no attempt to picture what it is. And at some point, we've seen a bit of noise from Washington criticizing Israel for, for having a lack of vision. And, you know, you would get unnamed reports now and then that the U.S. is floating this option, or you would see Secretary of State's Anthony Blinking flying into Israel and traveling to the West Bank to meet with the head of the Palestinian Authority. But again, this is already early December, and we still haven't seen any idea from the Israeli government what Gaza is going to look like. I mean, this war cannot go on forever. We all understand that the active phase of the war is probably going to take a number of weeks, 
I don't know, maybe a month or two, but what's going to happen afterwards? And this is a question that needs to be addressed right now, but I personally have seen very little to no attempts in Israel to address that question. One more story to talk about, I think. Uh, Natalia, you were speaking to people released by the Israelis at the same time as we've got Hamas re releasing hostages. Israel's also been releasing prisoners. Who did you speak to and what did they tell you? Yeah, I finally caught up with the Palestinian prisoners who were released as, as part of the deal between Israel and Hamas. You know, we have covered a lot, all aspects of the hostage release, everything that relates to the hostages, but I feel that we haven't paid that much attention to what's happening to the Palestinian prisoners. And it was very interesting for me to look at who those people actually are, because when the deal was first announced, there was a bit of opposition from Israel's far right, the same groups who are supporting this march that in Jerusalem that I talked about it earlier. And their accusation for the government was the fact that they're trying to release dangerous criminals back into society, or they would often call them terrorists. Now, if you actually look at the list, the original list that Israel submitted to Hamas, the list of prisoners they were supposed to release was solely women and children. And based on um, an analysis of that list, list by several rights organizations and local media outlets, we can say that around 80% of the people on the list were never convicted. Either they were charged, a lot of them haven't been even charged, they were just held in detention. Many of them were held in so-called administrative detention, which is a practice that is used solely in the West Bank that allows Israel to jail non-Israeli citizens in the West Bank. And those people are typically jailed on classified evidence. Charges are never pressed and they can be held in this detention indefinitely. There's no one convicted of murder or any violent crimes like that in, in that group. So it was very interesting for me to see who, who are those people who are getting out. Again, sometimes when this list was being discussed, there was a lot of discussion about what do you mean by Palestinian women and children? You know, Does Israel really jail children? There are lots of kids who are under 18. And uh, just last week, I went to see one of those families in uh, East Jerusalem, the, the, their boy, Ahmad Salameye, he's 14. He was first detained a year ago for throwing stones at Israeli settlers in his community. He was under house arrest for a while. And uh, in July this year, he was taken to prison. And he was in prison up until he was released in the final days of the ceasefire. And uh, yeah, obviously, the, the background is quite charged. The boy's father actually did time at the same prison. So he told me something like, my son walked out of exactly the same prison, exactly the same gate that I did about 30 years ago, which just shows this um, cycle of violence in um, Israel and Palestine that, that seems to be never-ending. And it was quite an experience visiting their neighborhood, which is quite central. So you just drive around the old city, the border of this neighborhood looks out at the Alexa compound. You see this beautiful mosque towering over the neighborhood. And when you drive down, you have the neighborhood of Ras al -Amun. And just bang in the middle of this Palestinian neighborhood, you see this massive cement wall with Israeli flags flying over it. And when I started looking and I started inquiring, it turned out that there used to be a police station there. 
And then there was a bit of a uh, municipal land auction, and this land was eventually auctioned off, and it was bought by an American businessman who built a settlement there in the early 2000s, and apparently it was quite a big story in itself. But yeah, despite international outcry, the settlement, it's called Maalese Team, it was built. It's a cluster of several blocks of flats which is surrounded by this concrete wall. And those confrontations between settlers and Palestinians are just never-ending. And as we see a lot in East Jerusalem and across the West Bank, it's typically Palestinians who end up getting detained for those altercations, not, um, not Israeli settlers. And obviously the family was very happy to see their son back. But there's this idea that it's not like, you know, it's over, the, the boys' ordeal is over. There's this idea that, you know, they got a temporary respite, that obviously it's great to have their son back. But fundamentally, the problem of the, of the conflict, the roots of those conflicts are still not solved. And, you know, this is just like putting a Band-Aid to this bleeding wound, which is still there. One thing that struck me is that this question from the very start has yet to be given a, a clear answer by the Israeli government for these families and for the gen general public in Israel. There's a huge dilemma of bringing back the hostages while also trying to deal with Hamas. And as the government has said, they vowed to eradicate Hamas. Well, the question is, how do you do both? It's really obviously almost an impossible question. You go in and you fight the way the military is doing now means putting the hostages that are still there at serious risk. Again, that was a question from day one. And that hasn't really been resolved. And there's a, a growing sentiment questioning how much dedication the government really has, how much they're prioritizing these remaining hostages. And again, there's, there's just not much coming from the government in terms of answering that. Uh, also, in a way, there's a new front opening at home for the Israeli government. There are economic woes. Many nations around the world are dealing with the post-COVID economy. So Israel's got that, but they've also got now the impact of war. They've got displaced families who are upset with them for not doing more to help rehabilitate them. And the longer this drags on, the more those feelings begin to brew. What that means politically, it's hard to say. We don't have a crystal ball. But at this point, it doesn't look like this will be a net positive. Sophia, any final thoughts from you? And I, I guess also this question of, Today, today, the Thursday, the 7th of December, is the first day of Hanukkah. Do we have a sense of how that's being celebrated this year in Israel? I think it's like a very private family gathering for a lot of people in general. And this year, to light that first candle is, for many, very bittersweet. For those who have survived the attacks, this is very fortunate. But many people are still suffering, and they've got relatives who died, friends who were murdered, brothers and sisters, children even, still being held hostage. And so it's a very difficult moment. Same same with what Natalia was talking about with Christmas around the corner. You know, these are holidays and moments in time for people to be with loved ones and to reflect, to observe, to celebrate, maybe to cry together even. And, and in the middle of all this, it's even sometimes hard for these people I've met, I think, to remember to breathe to literally physically breathe. <laughs> Natalia, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, I mean, the only thought I have right now is, obviously, I can't wait for this war to be over and I can't wait for any talks to resume on ceasefire on exchange of hostages. Right now, it seems very far off, but 
you know, let's see, let's see how this weekend goes because at this point the Israeli forces have gone so far and wide in Gaza. There's just barely little room for civilians. And just Wednesday night, we saw that UN Secretary General has made a very rare step invoking Article 99, I believe, that allows him to bring an urgent matter to the attention of Security Council. It's a very rare thing to do. Obviously, it's quite symbolic, but hopefully will attract more attention to, to the plight of Palestinian civilians trapped in Gaza. And, and hopefully we'll get some, some proper progress on, on trying then to ensure some of the security of people caught in the crossfire there. Thank you, Natalia and Sophia. You heard Sophia there mention her contact with Sami Abu Salem, a fellow journalist based in Gaza. Here are some of Sami's messages to Sophia. My name is Sami Abu Salim. I'm a father of four. I'm living in Jabal. Sami is a Palestinian living in the Gaza Strip, where a brutal war between Israel and Hamas rages on now into a third month. I've been in touch with Sami and others in Gaza as part of my coverage for The Telegraph. Sami sends me voice messages over WhatsApp whenever possible, describing where he is, what he's doing, things he sees. I'm talking now from Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital in Deir al-Balah. And I come here for several reasons. Number one, to charge my mobile and my laptop. Number two, because uh, there is internet here. It is very bad, but uh, yeah, we manage it better than nothing. Uh, Number three, here we collect some information. Sammy's a journalist, like me. He works for a Palestinian news agency, and so even while trying to survive, to keep his family alive, he's also trying to report on what's happening. I mean, if there is a bombing here or there, logically, as journalists, we have to go to the place of bombing to see what happened, to interview people, uh, to see witnesses, to take pictures. But honestly, it is very risky, so we come here to to see the casualties and the casualties arrive with some uh, relatives or neighbors and we ask them what happened and what they have seen. The Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza, a Palestinian territory in the modern state of Israel, is where Sami grew up. Just north of Gaza is a city called Ashkelon. Nearby is Sami's ancestral village, from where his grandparents were forced out of their homes in 1948. What this war means for Sami is that his children have now become his family's fourth generation of refugees. This is Sami's story of what life has been like in Gaza since war erupted. Before the 7th of October, uh, actually, we live a normal life. When I say normal life, I do not mean normal European life or uh, American life or ordinary life. I mean normal Gazan life, which means that suffering from electricity, shortage of electricity, problems in traveling, lots of attacks by Hamas, lots of restrictions, no freedom of speech, lots of restrictions, actually. But we uh, try to adapt it because it, 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 is a, it was a status quo government and they impose everything and nobody can object. And if you object, they will say you are, you are against resistance. So you will uh, shut up. 
at home uh, I have four kids one of them was uh, training uh, to be a musician he was learning how to play lute my other son used to go to sport club to he would like to his dream to be a goalkeeper like Can or Casillas or uh, or other names I do not know them uh, he knows them and the first one is Karim the uh, 16 and Muhammad the second one is Muhammad is uh, 13 and my little daughter uh, Layla in the kindergarten and uh, Anat she is uh, 15 she likes reading and traveling she would like to travel to read abroad anyway all of them everybody has his interests but all of them would like to leave Gaza and a bad life even before 7 October. On the 7th of October uh, news began to speak about uh, Hamas stormed the borders and arrested the uh, soldiers. So we said uh, okay now we will we will see prisoners swab. That's it. Maybe we'll testify some bombing here. But when we saw that there are some Israeli civilians were arrested I told my wife it is a big disaster. That's what happened. And I told him we will not stay at home, probably. And so Sammy packed up, moving his whole family to his brother's house near a hospital in northern Gaza in hopes that such an area would be spared from bombs. We stayed there two or three nights. Then uh, there was a station around us. So we escaped. We escaped to the hospital. When they first left home, Sammy carried whatever possible. Some clothes and some food uh, and butter and uh, power banks, mobiles, chargers, some water. Essential things and documents, IDs, passports, uh, certifications, etc. But each time he moved his family to a new place in search of shelter, he had to leave more and more behind. So we uh, took the very essential things and looked for a car, for a taxi, for uh, for a donkey car, whatever, to move to the south. While I'm moving, uh, I'm scared because of lots of bombing, but it is not the main one. Of course, it is scary, and I'm scared because of bombing. I, I, I thought that my kids will die. felt oppressed, felt uh, inability, and I felt shame shame for my kids because I, uh, they look at me with uh, strong eyes. Uh, I feel that they uh, are telling me, uh, please do something for us. We are we feeling cold. We are angry. We had some food, by the way, at that time, but uh, uh, protect us. Do something for us. But I cannot do anything. So I try to avoid looking in the eyes of my kids because I felt weakness and inability, shame or uh, embarrassed. Instead of shame, embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. I, I, I feel I am... I, I cannot look to their eyes, honestly. Because kids think that their father is the superhero. But in fact... Uh, I'm not a superhero because I cannot do anything for them. And all the time we were following the news to see our house. Was it bombed or not? Because when we left our house, as you are leaving uh, a part of your body, 
our memories, our life there, uh, childhood of my kids there, my wedding, uh, uh, the beginning of our life. Uh, uh, wo- uh, I mean, house is not only walls and tiles and uh, a ceiling. House, it is spirit, spiritual thing. And nowadays, even when we see some pictures in our mobile, we cry for, for memories. How our kids used to play, how they used to study. It is a spiritual issue, not only material. Months into war, and Sammy keeps narrowly surviving. At one point... There is bombing around, the roof is falling on our heads, parts of it. My wife was wounded, but very light one. That's why we moved another time. Now he's in Maghazi refugee camp in central Gaza. Food, water, fuel, all run scarce. And even the bakery, there was a sole bakery in Al-Maghazi. We used to wait in a long line for hours, five hours, six hours, seven hours, to have a bag of bread, about two, two kilos and a half. But this bakery was bombed. So no more bread in the camp. He's been looking for wheat to try to make bread. But even if he can find some, it's very expensive. For example, a bag or a sack of wheat, the official price was from 30 to 40. Now 500 shekels, 500, 600s, 400s. I mean, 10 doubles. It depends on your ability in gambling, uh, in arguing with the seller. 500 Israeli shekels. That's more than 100 pounds. Another uh, line is also a line for uh, cooking gas. Uh, we are, the cooking gas run out. So we have to fill the gas canisters. I and my kids uh, wait three days and nights in open air, in cold, waiting for our turn to fill the gas canister. And we managed to do it. Other people could not. And here I will say, I'm saying, I express my apologize for my parents because I blame them. When we talk about history, my mother told me how they lived their village uh, near Ashkelon uh, in 1948. They they escaped under uh, Israeli bombing at that time and shooting. So I said, ah, you should steadfastness, you should stay there while you escape from your village. Uh, You you should be more brave, braver. But uh, when I experienced the same, I, I am very sorry for my parents. I, ex- I, I experienced it myself. It is not easy. Lots of uh, things I have to say. I, I think the internet has become to disconnect. The last uh, update I have that there is damage in our house, but it is not destroyed. And uh, the whole neighborhood was bombed 
by airstrikes or cannons. I, I do not know what happened to my house inside and our clothes, our mattresses, our blankets, our memories, our books, our, uh, our batteries. I do not know our fridge. I do not know. I last heard from Sammy a day ago. He was still in the Magazi refugee camp. Tomorrow I will again look for a message from him, a sign that he is alive. This week, we end the episode with another plea from a family of a Hamas hostage. Ivyata David had the chance to flee the Supernova Music Festival, held in the desert just three miles from the Gaza security fence. But he stayed behind to help the wounded and to try and help others escape. He, too, is still a hostage. His brother, Ile, is all too aware of the difficulty in getting him out as a young man. He joined my colleagues Rob Mendick and Jack Leather in the Telegraph offices last week. Vietao, I love you so much. And also, my sister loves you and our parents, they love you so much. And we know you are brave and strong and you can manage. Just hold on because you will come back home. I promise you. Britain has a lot of influence on the Middle East. And we hope that through telling our stories, we can get your help to, to, to pressure Qatar, to pressure maybe Egypt, um, you know, all the, all the countries that are involved in saving my brother, essentially, and all the other hostages. Hamas is, is, is they are choosing who is to let go. And they do it smartly. They also know that as time passes, the world community will lose interest and they know that it will be good for them, for their reputation to release the children first and the women first. So we are actually so afraid that my brother and all of the other men, there are more than 100 men there, that they will be forgotten. We cannot know for sure what's going on. As far as I know, they don't have very good conditions down there and each day that passes it's it's a real life danger so it feels urgent all the time it feels urgent i mean for 54 days it feels urgent and tell me about Evyatal. he's very he's a, he's a very gentle person he's he's 22 years old uh, he's supposed to celebrate he will celebrate his 23 uh, birthday uh, by the end of December, like a month from now. He plays the guitar. He really into music. Um, he plays especially rock and like hard rock. He is a very calm person and sensitive. He, he's a listener. He listens. He doesn't talk a lot. He just sits and listens and then 
giving a sensitive advice. He's a very good brother. As, as children, we, we, we were used to do a mess everywhere we, we, we came. I mean, I remember my father took us to buy shoes in a shoe shop. The, the only thing we wanted is to play. So we ran, and it was huge in, our, in my mind, like as, as a child. It was a huge place, all full with weird shelves and, and so many shoes, and it, like, it was like a very big playground. So me and my, my brother was just running and teasing each other all the time. Right now, I think when we got older, our uh, connection is based more on music, like just being together. We try to play every time I, I come home to my parents' house. We, uh, we play together and sing together. Uh, I, I play the piano, we play the guitar. Presumably you just want to be able to play music with him again. When he will come back, we will play again. <laughs> and on the day itself, I think I read that he, he maybe had the chance to escape and he stayed behind to help injured people and he stayed behind to help others escape. I don't know if you can put that in your words, but I think... We heard from an eyewitness that he had the chance to escape. He told us that when they were trying to escape, there was a traffic jam because the, the, the terrorist made a traffic jam on the escape route. When they un understood that they are surrounded, they uh, went out of their cars and this eyewitness... He's telling that he saw my brother and his friends and he went to them. He didn't know what to do, stay and help, run away. And my brother was very determined. He said to him, right now you have nothing to look for here. You have to run away and go home. And I think my brother, because he is so slow paced and calm, I think that's also what saved him. I mean, he didn't run away. It was more important for him that the others will be okay. And maybe the fact that he didn't got into panic mode, it signaled the terrorists not to kill him. That what, that's what I like to believe. Because two of his friends were, were murdered eventually in the events, and one other was kidnapped alongside him. I think I read some of your sister posted Instagram appealing for help and got a video back from Hamas or you're not sure what? Not accurate. We, okay. on the same day, on the October 7th, yeah. my sister, my younger sister, she's very, very clever. And so she really posted on Instagram a photo of, of my brother calling for help. And it was about 2 p.m. when she got from an unknown number, just a fine man trying to help a message he asked, did you hear something about your brother? And, and she said, no. So he sent her a screenshot from a video of my, my, my brother's face for, for sure, uh, very frightened uh, with um, uh, Arabic letters on the screen. So uh, we understood that that's from, from a video. And we asked for the video and we got actually two videos, both of them Hamas propaganda, in one of them, uh, you could see my brother shirtless. Uh, like his, his shirt was torn, tied up with hands behind his back, uh, being led 
uh, inside Gaza. A terrorist holding him in one hand in a headlock, holding a gun in the other hand with the full uh, combat gear. Um, just dragging him, dragging him. We saw him walking in that video, so it was kind of comfort for us to see that he's uh, not wounded. And on the other video, we saw him on the floor of a dark room with other uh, four guys. They were all abducted from, from the festival. And one of them is his best friend. And they were all, like, the cameraman was uh, filming their faces to, for us to see how frightened they are. And you could see, like, real fear, like an animal fear in, in my brother's eyes. Because they were so confused. They didn't know what's going on. They were abducted from, from, from a party. And that's, that's also the, the image that, that comes to my mind when I think about him, that frightened face of him. And what does that do for your family? How difficult is it? Uh, it was really devastating at first to see him like that, but we, we quickly understood that the fact that he is alive and that we had a sign of life from him we understood that that's very powerful. That's something that um, most of the family doesn't have. We got lucky to, to have these photos. So it actually gives us hope to know that he is alive, that he was caught alive. And is the, do you feel the Israeli government is doing enough? Um, I really want to believe so. I really do. But I don't feel... Like, anyone is doing enough right now. I don't blame anyone because we're dealing with a crazy terrorist, murderous organization. So I really don't blame anyone. But I really think that the fact that there are still so many people down there, civilians, for 54 days, that shouldn't be happening. I mean, it's even, it's crazy that, that that's, that's the situation. And so if there will be, if, if there was enough being done, I won't be here today speaking with you. When you see pro-Palestinian protests in London, I don't know if you've seen that. I don't know how you... I think that's, that's fine. I mean, everyone can protest about what, what they wish. But I think that there, are, there is also a lot of ignorance because right now what's going on is not a war between Israel and Palestine. It's, it's a war between the free world and, and terror. And that, I think, is not the main focus right now. I personally really feel sorry for every loss of human lives. But the, the other side, and when I say the other side, I mean the, the, the murderous people that using people as human shields and uh, cards in a game, they don't value uh, human lives. There are uh, men down there, they, they are all brothers and fathers, and some of them are grandparents, some of them have kids, and uh, lots of friends, of course. I mean, every, every family is affected in, in Israel. We all share, like, a big tragedy together, and anyone knows someone that something terrible has happened to him. We are really afraid that the world community will forget us. So that's, that's one thing. And the other thing is that we have no clue what's going on with them. I mean, we have no sign of life. We know 
nothing about their well-being, really nothing, for 54 days. And that's also crazy. Hamas is not allowing the Red Cross to enter, is not releasing any information. I think that's another thing that we should discuss as a society. Demand, I don't know, demand Qatar to, to do anything it takes. It, it was supposed to be a part of the deal, of the current deal, you know, the, the last deal being done. The Hamas was supposed to let the Red Cross enter and check on the, on the hostages, but it didn't happen. If I can address, address the whole nation, don't forget us. Don't forget my brother's face and name. Don't, don't forget Eviatar. Don't forget all the other hostages being held there. They all have families. They all have loved ones. And they were all being abducted from their lives. They were just celebrating lives, even just living their lives. And it's our duty as human beings to let them go. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.